Uh, a couple thoughts real quick on the reading from Leviticus. You will have observed there in Leviticus 19 that after each statement of what not to do, each statement God speaks and gives the foundation for it and says, I am the Lord, your God. The basis for law is God himself. It's very, very significant. Well, know that we love you. I said to Tammy, sitting in the hospital, can you imagine going through this without a church that's loving you? We couldn't. But the Father has sustained us. And in no small part through you. Thank you. Let's pray. As we approach this scripture, we'll pray, then we'll stand for the conclusion of the passage from John chapter 13. John 13. Let's pray. Our Father, gracious and merciful, how we love and thank you for the gift of John, thy, thy servant's gospel. How we love to perceive thy soul, thy heart, Lord Jesus. Our earnest desire is that our hearts would beat with yours, Master, so that we would grieve over what you grieve over, that we would seek the Father's glory even as you did and do yet through us, and that we would rejoice with those who, when those in darkness are brought into thy light by thy sovereign hand. Father, mold and shape our minds, our wills, our affections to love thee as thou hast loved us. Now as a church, you've brought us to this, the final discourse of Jesus. His public ministry is finished. Now, Master, you turn to your disciples, the apostles. And here, Father, we we truly discern, we taste the very tenderness and heart of Jesus. It thrills us to contemplate thy heart in heaven, Jesus, for sinners. It thrills us to realize you are praying for us before we are nudged by your spirit to begin praying. What comfort knowing that you're before us, above us, undergirding us, dwelling within us. Thou who art the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, live within these jars of clay, radiating joy through us to one another and into the darkness. Now humbly we pray as you have taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and stand with me. 
We'll be reading John 13, verses 31 through 38, picking up where Don left off. The Word of God. When therefore Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The word of God. You may be seated. Four weeks ago, my last time to preach from God's Word, we considered our Lord Jesus Christ's action in John chapter 13, and we observed that none of what took place caught him off guard. For when he came into the world, he spoke to his God, saying, A body hast thou prepared for me, and I have come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10 tells us further that by this will of God his Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But even more, he, he knew he was returning to the Father, to his Father in heaven. But observe, he was not just going to the Father, he was returning to where he had been from eternity past. Verse 3, Jesus knew that he, John 13, verse 3, Jesus knew that he, the second Adam, had been reinvested with dominion and authority. And this Jesus knew as he washed their feet. And we observed that Christ explained the reason for what he had done. He, he said, I, your master and Lord, have given you an example to be followed by all the godly, that none should begrudge serving another, no matter how mundane or lowly that service is. So four weeks ago, we saw how John's record of the upper room is focused on humility, servanthood, selflessness, relationships, not liturgical ritual. This day of divine worship, I wish to achieve three things. First, explain the meaning of this passage that I just read with you. Second, show the biblical doctrine in this passage. And third, make application to our lives corporately and individually. We come to verse 21, which reveals the 
troubled in nature spirit of Christ. As he testifies, O oh man, O oh man, I say one of you will betray me. The disciples are shocked. They are at a loss knowing who, and they, and they discuss one another. In fact, the other Gospels record them. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I think it's Mark that alone records Judas's question. Is it I, Rabbi? Everybody else refers to him as Lord. Judas can't get the word out of his mouth. Is it I, teacher? So the disciples are shocked. And Jesus then softly, well actually Peter gestures to John, tell us who it is. John leans over, he being right next to Jesus in a reclined prone position, says, Lord, who is it? Jesus then softly, to John's hearing only, says, it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Jesus dips the morsel, hands it to Judas Iscariot, and then dismisses Judas, saying, What you do, do quickly. Ancient practice suggests that for a host to give a guest a morsel in this manner was a thing of highest, highest honor. But observe divine sovereignty juxtaposed with human responsibility in verse 27. 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered. Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Calvin. He addresses Judas as a desperate man. Go to destruction since you have resolved to go to destruction. And in doing so, he performs the office of a judge who condemns to death not those who he of his own accord desires to ruin, but those who have already ruined themselves by their own fault. In short, Christ does not lay Judas under the necessity of perishing, but declares him to be what he had formerly been, end quote Calvin. Hmm. It is in verses 28 and 29 that the disciples are just uh, perplexed. They are confused. They don't know for what purpose Jesus had said any of this. Except for John, they, they all are without knowledge why Jesus dismissed Judas. And yet Jesus had told John that his betrayer is the one to whom he would hand the dipped morsel. Clearly, the rest of the apostolic band did not hear Jesus say that to, to John softly. And since reaching across the table, here Judas would have been a little bit conspicuous. The scripture simply says he responds to John, apparently softly, because nobody understood, and then dips the morsel and hands it to Judas, who is probably on his other side. Judas was sitting beside Jesus. So Jesus honored his betrayer by the seating arrangement. 
Jesus washed his betrayer's feet. Jesus did not openly expose his betrayer to full open shame. He could have, he didn't. And Jesus handed the dipped morsel to his betrayer. Why did Jesus not explicitly point Judas out? Calvin says, The sign was of such a nature that it discovered, identified Judas to one person only, John, and did not immediately bring him forward to the view of all. But it was advantageous that John should be witness of this fact in order that he might afterwards reveal it to the others at the proper time. And Christ intentionally delayed to make Judas publicly known that when hypocrites are concealed, we may more patiently bear till they are dragged forth to the light. We see Judas sitting amongst the others and yet condemned by the mouth of the judge. And then this final statement, in no respect better is the condition of those who hold a place among the children of God. End quote. Food to chew on. Verse 31 through 32, it is night. Jesus has just dismissed his betrayer. He, he knows that he'll be arrested tonight and crucified the next day on Passover, Friday. And he knew that the minds of his beloved disciples were very weak and hesitating. And in truth, does not the remembrance of the cross of Christ cause us to tremble? Were it not for the consolation that he triumphed over the cross? He obtained victory over Satan, sin, and death. Every celebration of the sacrament, as we will do next week, uh, re reminds us that on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. But in the upper room, they don't know this. And what will happen when the disciples see their Lord dragged to the cross with all the afflictions, reproaches, scourging, mocking, cursing. How shall the disciples react in light of Zechariah 13 as God the Father says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Who struck the shepherd? God the Father. By what secondary means did God the Father strike the shepherd? By the Jews and Romans. God is behind it all to the glory of his name. So Jesus withdraws the focus from the physical nature of his death to its spiritual fruit. Not only will glory and honor come to him, but God will be glorified in Christ Jesus. 
and I, and I love this from Calvin. He glorifies God the Father for in the cross of Christ as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines, but nowhere has it shown more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested, sin has been blotted out, salvation has been restored to men, and in short, the whole world has been renewed, and everything restored to good order. Amen! That's Calvin's take. Christ promises that when the ignominy by which he will endure the cross, illustrious honor will follow his death. Calvin says again, And this too was accomplished, for the death of the cross which Christ suffered was so far from obscuring his true rank that in that death his high rank is chiefly displayed. There his amazing love to mankind, his infinite righteousness atoning for sin, appeasing the wrath of God, his wonderful power conquering death, subduing Satan, and opening heaven blazed with full brightness. The Spirit declares through John, in Revelation, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And then verse 34, Christ gives the singular command, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Jesus essentially says, I, I wish you continually to remember this commandment as if it had been a law just recently made. Elsewhere, Romans 13, it is called the fulfillment of the law. Jesus summarizes Matthew 22, which is the greatest. He says, love the Lord your God, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Calvin's thoughts are helpful. Brotherly love, indeed, is extended to strangers, for we are all of the same flesh, and all are created after the image of God. But because the image of God shines more brightly in those who have been regenerated, it is proper that the bond of love among the disciples of Christ should be far more close. End quote. Truly, the past three weeks, you have demonstrated such brotherly and sisterly love to us. The Father has touched us mightily. Blessed be God. Doctrine from the passage. And you might think of doctrine as, oh, heavy, heavy. Well, here's the first piece of doctrine. Jesus loves me. This I know. Do you? Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote, and, and this singularly touched 
the two of us in the midst of our pain. And I shared it with you in an email, but it fits here. Listen to Thomas Goodwin from the 17th century. Now when Christ comes first out of the other world from the dead, clothed with that heart and body which he was to wear in heaven, what message does he send first to them? We would all think that because they would not know him in his sufferings, they wouldn't be true, they wouldn't be loyal, they fell asleep, then they ran. So he would now be as strange to them in his glory. Or at least that his first words would be to berate them for their faithlessness and falsehood. But here is no such thing. For his first word concerning them is, Go tell my brethren. You read elsewhere how it is a great point of love and condescension in Christ, so to entitle us. Hebrews 2, 11. He is not ashamed to call us brethren, though surely his brethren then had been ashamed of him. For him to call them so when he is first entering his glory argues more the love in him toward them. And what's interesting is that he carries it as Joseph did in the height of his advancement when he first opened his mind to his brethren. I am Joseph, your brother. So Christ says here, tell them you've seen Jesus, their brother. I consider them brethren still. But what is the message that he would first have delivered to them? That I ascend to my Father and to your Father. This is a more friendly speech by far and argues infinitely more love than that of Joseph, though he had compassion. For Joseph, after he told them he was their brother, added, whom you sold into Egypt. Had to say that. He reminded them of their unkindness, but not so Christ. He says not a word of that. He reminds them not of what they had done against him. This Puritan father then says this. Poor sinners who are full of thoughts of their own sins know not how they shall be able at the latter day to look Christ in the face when they first meet him. But they may relieve their spirits against this care and fear by Christ's conduct toward his disciples who had so sinned against him. Be not afraid, your sins he will remember no more. Yea, further, you may observe that he reminds them not so much of what he had been doing for them. He, he doesn't say, tell them I've been a-dying for them. Or little do they think what I've suffered for them. Nothing of that is said. His heart, his care, are set upon doing more. Christ looks not backward at their, our, unfaithfulness, but he looks forward as a woman her travail for joy that a man-child is born. Having now dispatched that great work on earth for them, 
he hastens to heaven as fast as he can to do another. Oh, that impacted me. Having dispatched that great work on earth, the cross, he hastens to heaven to as fast as he can to do another, to pray for us, to intercede for us, to mediate for us. And though he knows he has business yet to do upon earth, that will hold him 40 days longer, yet to show that his heart is longing and eagerly desires to be at work for them in heaven, he speaks in the present tense and says, I ascend, and he expresses his joy that not only does he go to his father, but that he goes to our father to be an advocate with him for us. And then this Puritan asks, And is indeed Jesus our brother alive? And does he call us brethren? And does he talk thus lovingly of us? Whose heart would not this overcome? It's from his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Well, Jesus loves me, this I know. Second point of doctrine, the Father loves me. Look at John 16, 26 through 7. John 16, 26 through 7. Christ here says, <clears throat> In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. John 16, 27 now. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father has touched me before at that passage, but he reminded me just of late of it. When he first touched me, and, and it's just like the scripture just leaped out of me, I was overwhelmed by the thought that Jesus says, I won't ask the Father because the Father loves you. Do you know that? Does it touch your heart? Interestingly, the word Jesus uses here is not agape. It's phileo. Brotherly love. Phileo, as opposed to agape, which speaks of selfless giving, phileo has affection in it. The Father feels for you. Calvin says, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the Heavenly Father as soon as we have placed him before him, the name of his Son. Hmm. In Christ's high priestly prayer, he says in verse chapter 17, 23, You sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. 
And verse 26, he prays that the love with which you loved me may be in them. Mm. Psalms 27, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And Job 19, As for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at the last he shall take his stand upon the earth. And yea, though my skin be destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. This is what undergirds us in the loss of our son. Application. Application, I, I encourage you, because there's not a one of us that doesn't need it, I encourage you to reflect on your view of God the Father. New Christians invariably, whether they be second generation Christians or not, will carry into their understanding of God the Father their emotions and feelings and assumptions and experiences with their earthly father. That can be both good and devastating. Do not judge your heavenly father by the evil or sin or bad that you saw or see in your earthly father. Rethink your view of God the Father. Richard Sibbs says, Puritan again, in this we may see the sweet love of God to us. And what a comfort is this, that seeing that God's love rests on Christ as well pleased in him, we may gather that he is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. For his love rests in a whole Christ, in Christ mystical as well as Christ natural. Do you understand what he means? In Christ mystical, we are the body of Christ. But Christ natural, the man seated at his right hand. So the Father's love rests upon the whole Christ. And because he loves him and us with one love, let us embrace Christ and in him God's love. Jeremiah Burroughs, another Puritan, that blessed me again. God, who is the infinite, glorious first being, embraces us with an entire fatherly love. All the love that ever was in any parent towards children is but as one drop of the infinite ocean of fatherly love that is in God unto his people. Richard Sibbs, again, the whole chain of God's love so holdeth that all creatures in heaven and earth cannot break a link of it. Therefore, never doubt of its continuance, for it holds firm on God's part, not thine. <laughs> It does not matter upon you. 
Your salvation rests upon God. When the child falls not, it is from the mother's holding the child, not from the child's holding the mother. So it is God's holding of us, embracing of us, justifying of us, that maketh the state firm and not ours. For ours is but a reflection and result of his, which is invariable. So application, reflect how you view your Father in heaven. Reflect what your prayers demonstrate about your Father in heaven. May the aroma of our prayers, our worship in song, and the preached scripture reflect the incredible bounty of the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus. Second and last application, as wondrously kind and supportive as the tender demonstrated love has been from you to us in our season of loss, God would say to us as a body of believers, excel still more, excel still more. Oh, not to us, to one another. Let this be a grace-saturated church where the love of the Father is just exuding through everywhere. 1 Thessalonians 4 and Philippians 1 speaks well of this tender affection and abounding love you've shown us. So Jesus has given a new commandment that we should love one another even as he's loved us. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. The Father loves me. The Father loves you. Rethink your thoughts about the Father. And let us reflect that the beauty of the gospel comes first from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And let us reflect that the Father embraces us with everlasting arms. My safety, our son's safety, your safety, depends not on ourselves, but on him. This I pray, that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that we may approve the things that are excellent, in order to have sincere, blameless lives in Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, and, and all to the glory and praise of God, our blessed, loving, merciful, and ever good Father. Amen. Father, bless this body of believers, our brothers and sisters. We, your children, come. We thank you for shining the gospel through the face of Jesus. And we thank you, Tammy, and I thank you for how you have undergirded us and held us together through the love that you've demonstrated to your people. Teach us to love one another ever more deeply that those who are around us may know that we are your 
disciples. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.